Hello and welcome to Central's podcast. We pray your heart is touched through listening and that it helps you in your walk with Jesus. Today's message is from Pastor Kurt. So what I want you to do, if you're online, you can raise your hand in the comment section, but if you're in the house today, I want you to raise your hand if you've ever been camping before in a tent, not like in a cabin, not with there's TV or heating or air conditioning. All right, that's good. Thank you. There's a lot of you. That's good. I've only been uh, camping at a tent just a few, <clears throat> a few times, but every single one of those times has been meaningful. Uh, it's been a, a, what you could say, you know, a relationship building experience. There's something different about being in a tent where there's no amenities, nothing else to do but to sit and talk and hang out. There's these ritualistic things like eating too many s'mores by the campfire, or staying up way too late until you get delirious. I know uh, this past August, my boys and I, I can't even talk about it without, without laughing, actually. Uh, we did all of those things. We ate too much. We stayed up way too late and then just ended up talking and listening to the surrounding campers until like literally our stomach and our cheeks hurt from laughing so much. But in those, in those spaces, it's just you and your close loved ones, right? You don't usually go camping in a tent with somebody that you don't know or that you don't want to get to know better, right? You usually hear some things and see some things and smell some things that are probably a little bit more intimate than uh, just, you know, a normal friend or a, a colleague that you would go with. But usually in those times, <clears throat> there is a depth of relationship that is born. There is a camaraderie uh, that occurs. There's a closeness. There's inside jokes. There's inside stories. There's favorite memories that are formed inside of that tent. And I want to tell you, God wants you to have that same experience with him. He wants to usher you into the tent of his presence so you can tell stories. You can share favorite memories. Yes, you can even laugh until your cheeks hurt, but it's the camaraderie. It's the closeness. It's the intimacy. It's the relationship that he wants to have with you that is not going to happen if we just continue on in our everyday life and do not take time to get closer with him. Amen? So throughout January, we talked about consecration this entire month of how we are set apart for the Lord, how we're holy unto the Lord, how he first consecrated us to him, and then we are consecrating ourselves regularly back to him. Then this past weekend with the Consecrate uh, Conference, hopefully again that you've just uh, um, experienced a greater closeness and intimacy with the love of the Father, with Jesus himself. Now, as I was praying uh, earlier in January about where to go in February, you know, we could have started a, a brand new series in a completely different direction, a uh, completely different topic and subject, but I felt like the Lord wanted us to continue to drill down in this area of closeness with him, how we're called apart to be holy unto him for the purpose of intimacy, the purpose of relationship a purpose of truly knowing God's heart and letting our heart be exposed to him so he truly knows our heart as well. And that's what we're going into here. Uh, when I think of the examples of the Bible about people who were set apart to truly go through in their daily activities, worshiping the Lord, and not in a forced way. It was a, a way that was set up such that they would actually be able to experience the presence of God himself on a daily basis. And when I think about that, I think about the priests. We've talked about this 
uh, throughout consecrated, but it was the priests specifically in the tabernacle that were consecrated, that were anointed for the task of worshiping the Lord through a prescribed way that God had called them to do in something called the tabernacle. And that's what we're going to be discussing all the way through Good Friday service leading right up to Easter. And when you hear this word tabernacle, Tabernacle was a portable tent that was used to worship the Lord, to bring their offerings and their sacrifices to the Lord when, they were tra- when the Israelites were traveling through the desert, some call it the wilderness, after being delivered from Egypt. So they're on the way to the promised land, and God gave them a prescribed way to set up this tent, this, this, uh, this abode, this abiding place that the Father wanted with them all the way through the wilderness. There's a verse, Exodus 25, verse 8, that says this, then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. When I used to go through Bible reading plans, and I would get to Exodus, like Genesis is full of like really cool stories, and all these different things that are happening in the life of Joseph, and all this, then you get to Exodus, and it always got confusing for me. It was like, all these different measurements and colors and coverings and pieces and lampstands and arcs and like all this stuff. And for me, I would just like read, like when I was young, I'd just kind of read past it as quick as possible because I was like confused. I did not have an idea or a clue what was going on. There's so many details and so many instructions on what to do. But if you gain nothing else out of the next seven weeks, let it be this one verse right here. Then have them make a sanctuary for me. Why? And I will dwell among them. I will dwell among them. God's will and purpose. Listen, from the beginning of time, from when Adam and Eve walked in the Garden of Eden, his will, his purpose, his plan was to dwell among us. It says that Adam, in the cool of the day, that God was walking with Adam in the garden. So it's God's desire to dwell among us. It was man and women's disobedience and rebellion that created that separation. And now that they are in the wilderness, God has set forth another plan that he might dwell among them. So when you're reading through these things, and we're, as we're looking at these pieces over these next several weeks in the book of Exodus and in the Leviticus and so on, don't get caught up in the details and let them confuse you. Let them enrich the idea and spring forth in your heart the idea that my creator desires to dwell among me. And he already does. Amen? What I want to do is give you an overview. If you're newer to faith or if you're newer uh, to this part of the Bible even, I just want to give you a quick overview of what's been going on since the man uh, named Joseph was on the earth back in Genesis chapter 37 and kind of bring us up to speed so we're all at least on the similar starting page. In Genesis 37 through 50, it's a lot of chapters, it talks about a man named Joseph. Jacob was his father, Joseph was mistreated. A lot happened to him. He ended up in prison. He was able to discern Pharaoh's dreams. He was called out of prison and put in charge of all of Egypt. Basically, it was Pharaoh and then Joseph. 
Through these chapters, it talks about Joseph reuniting to the brothers that abused him and misused him. And eventually, Jacob's entire family, which Joseph is the son of, moves into Egypt during a famine. You with me so far? So there's a famine in the area. Joseph is in charge. He has a lot of resources. His brothers find out about it, and his entire, Jacob's entire family starts moving in with Pharaoh's blessing. Exodus chapter 1, a new Pharaoh comes to town. He's now in charge. He sees all of these Israelites in his land, and he doesn't like it. It says that they became too numerous for his liking. So what the new Pharaoh says is, I don't want these people to have more power than our people. Put them in slavery. So now they are enslaved for hundreds of years as we can follow the story. In Exodus 2 through 18, it describes the life of Moses. Many of you have heard of Moses, how he was away in the wilderness, his own wilderness for 40 years, and the events leading up to his preparation uh, of coming back into Egypt. So from Exodus 2 through 18, it's talking about the life of Moses and also all of the events leading up to God's deliverance of the slaves, the Israelite slaves that were in Egypt called the Exodus. All right, if you may have heard of the 10 plagues that have occurred and so on. This was Moses interacting with Pharaoh, basically saying, God is saying, let my people go. So there's these events happening. It's called the Exodus. It happens in the event called the Passover, where the Israelites who were slaves were delivered. It's a beautiful picture of our own salvation. So Exodus 19 through 24. Now, the Israelites are in the wilderness or the desert, those, name, those terms are going to be used interchangeably. They are now delivered from the enemy. This, it is a beautiful picture of salvation into our process with God, into a spirit-filled life. What God had for them was called the promised land. When we think of Jerusalem and Israel modern day, that was a part of the land that God promised the Israelites. So the Israelites are in slavery. God sends Moses to deliver them. They are actually, they go through the Exodus. Now they are in the wilderness time where they're traveling through the desert on their way to the promised land. Should have been about 40 days, ended up being about 40 years because of their rebellion, because of their stubbornness, because of their disobedience. A part of this process happens in Exodus 19 through 24 where Moses goes up onto a mountain, Mount Sinai, and God begins to describe to him the agreement called a covenant that he wants with them. That includes the Ten Commandments that many of you have heard of or you know, have seen before on buildings and so on. God is ex- describing to, to Moses the type of relationship he wants, and it comes with great blessing if they obey and great curse if they disobey. But God's ex- describing this all through these chapters. In Exodus 24 through 31, it talks about detailed instructions that Moses received directly from God of how to construct this thing called the tabernacle. Again, God's saying, I want to dwell with you, so you're going to set up this sanctuary that you can set up and tear down and set up and tear down as you're traveling through the wilderness so that he can dwell with his people. Exodus 32 talks about rebellion. It's crazy. God delivers these Israelites 
from, the de- from Egypt. I mean, from, from severe slavery. And they see like this glory cloud. I, I make fun of it. You know, I, I say, you don't need a glory cloud to descend in your living room to meet with Jesus. Maybe you have to turn on some worship music. That's fine. But you don't have to wait for an experience to know he's here. However, in this case, they actually experience the glory cloud of God resting on this mountain. They're at the base of the mountain. Moses is up there. Apparently, 40 days is too long to wait to hear what God says. Maybe they were the the beginning of the microwave generation. I don't know. But while Moses is up there, Aaron, his, his assistant, we'll call him, has the idea, hey, let's melt all some of this gold that we took from the Egyptians and let's make a golden calf out of it. So Moses is coming down from this 40-day encounter, the covenant, the instructions, the relationship, face-to-face interaction. He has the Ten Commandments on the stone tablets. He comes down and he sees that they're worshiping this golden calf. So Moses does what probably most Christians would do. They got really upset in that moment and they threw a fit. And he threw the stones down They crack. The Ten Commandments are now broken. In Exodus 33, you guys okay? I'm just giving you some background so we can kind of catch up to where where we are. In Exodus 33, this temporary tent of meeting is actually pitched outside the camp. And this is what God is instructing him to, what what he's instructing Moses to do. And I want, this is where I want to, where I want to differentiate what we're going to be talking about. There's a tent of meeting that God tells Moses to set up outside of camp. And in this tent, Moses and Aaron would go into the tent. And when they were in this tent, there was a a cloud of glory that would come and hover uh, in that tent. And while Moses was meeting with God, people, the Israelites, would stand on the outside of their tent. They wouldn't necessarily all come together at that tent. They would stand outside of where they lived until Moses came out, he would go about his daily business, and Aaron often stayed there. This tent of meeting in Scripture is different than the tabernacle that we're going to talk about. I just want to share a few verses from it so you guys can get a picture. In Exodus 33, 7, it says, Now Moses used, used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. Anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to that tent of meeting outside the camp. Whenever Moses went into the tent, All the people rose and stood at the entrances of their tents. That's where they lived, watching Moses until he entered the tent. As Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke to Moses. Whenever the people saw the cloud uh, standing at the entrance of the tent, they all stood in worship, each at the entrance of their tent. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face. I love this. As one speaks to a friend. I mean, this is amazing. This is before the actual tabernacle was set up, guys. And God would speak to Moses as a friend speaks to another friend. His desire was to dwell among us. It says, then Moses would return to the camp, but his young age, Joshua, uh, son, uh, I said Aaron, I'm sorry. Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. So this tent of meeting is outside while they're actually building the tabernacle that is inside the camp. In Exodus chapter 34, there's new stone tablets are given. This is the second set of the Ten Commandments. You could read through uh, Scripture very quickly and not even know that there's a second set uh, that was ever made. Now, in Exodus 35 through 39, there's a construction of all of the equipment that's going to be used in the tabernacle. 
This is considered the final tent of meeting. The last area where we're going to pick up today is in Exodus 40, where the new tabernacle is actually set up and becomes what Scripture calls the tent of meeting. Now, what's different? The first tent of meeting was something that Moses set up, and he went outside the camp, and he went in there, okay? Now, when we come all the way back to the tabernacle being set up in Exodus chapter 40, this is actually inside all of the camps of Israel. So all of the different tribes are set up around this one place called the tabernacle, but Scripture also refers to it as the tent of meeting. So when you hear about offerings, sacrifices, different priests going in and out of these different areas of this tabernacle, sometimes they'll refer to it as the tent of meeting. In Exodus chapter 40, verse 1, it says, The Lord said to Moses, set up the tabernacle. What's the next phrase? The tent of meeting. It's different because this one's on the inside of the town, of the tribes. It says, on the first day of the month, place the Ark of the Covenant law in it and shield the Ark with the curtain, which we're going to talk about in upcoming weeks. Now listen to what happens in verse 34. It says, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of of the Lord filled the tabernacle. This was the Lord's desire, to dwell among us through his glory. And in all the travels of the Israelites, watch what happens now. Whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. They would move. That was their sign. But when the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and there was fire was in the cloud by night in the sight of all the Israelites during all their travels. So the tent outside, the cloud only came when Moses was in there. And it would lift when he was done meeting with him. For this tabernacle, could you imagine going about your everyday life in the desert and seeing this glory cloud resting on the tabernacle? And at night there was fire from the Lord resting inside this cloud on the tabernacle. And his divine instruction was when this thing lifts, you lift the tabernacle up, pack it up with the instructions I've given you, and set off on the way. And this was his way that God dwelt with his people throughout their time in the wilderness. So inside this tabernacle are a whole bunch of areas and furnishings, and each one of them have very specific meaning. You know, when you look at the items and when we learn about these things, there's a depiction, there's symbolism between an earthly model of what's in heaven. But it's not just that. These images, these pictures, these, this equipment, these furnishings actually point to Jesus. And this is why I think the Lord was so specific in his detail. It wasn't to make the priests jump through all these hoops. It was so that as he's dwelling with them, he gives them pictures and images and prophetic words about what the Messiah would do in future time and how his spirit would dwell in us. It's not just a picture of heaven on earth. It's not just a picture of Jesus and our interaction with him. It is an image of how one day we ourselves will be temples of the Holy Spirit. And how we look at him dwelling only in the most holy place where only the high priest is allowed to enter, but everybody sees this glory to a point where the Holy Spirit of God dwells in every single believer 
that follows Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 6.19, it says, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Say, he's in me. Say it like you mean it this time. He's in me. So Paul's saying, do you not know your body, the thing that you walk around in your earthly tent is now a temple, a tabernacle, a resting place of the very spirit of God who lives in you. It says, in whom you have received from God. You are not your own. You've been bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. I believe that Paul's asking the question, do you not know, because it's easy to forget. That's why I think sometimes it's so easy to rebel against God, disobey God, live in our own way, because we don't actually wake up with the awareness, like, do I not know that my body, everywhere I go, the Holy Spirit is going with me? That God planned this from the beginning of time, no longer to live in a physical tent, but to come and to live within us, to dwell with us, to be with us so that we could know his heart and that he can know our heart. That's his plan and that's his purpose. You guys okay so far? There's a lot of background in this, in, in this message. So I don't want to confuse you here, but I'm going to add just a few other details so you can understand when you're seeing things, even in the Psalms, some of this will light up for you. We have the tent of meeting outside the camp. Say outside. Then we have the tabernacle inside the camp with all the Israelite tribes around it. Say inside. This tabernacle is also referred to as the tent of meeting. So when you hear offerings, sacrifices, all these things happening other than Moses, that is the tabernacle, okay? When they get into the promised land and they begin to have a king named David, he actually sets up a more permanent tabernacle. It's not a building yet, but it's a more permanent tabernacle in Jerusalem. So you'll hear David's tabernacle. What happened was the Ark of the Covenant, which you already, we read about, we'll get into it more, was stolen by the Philistines. When David gets it back, he puts it into this other tabernacle. So there's like an, another one that's set up in Jerusalem. That's finally transitions into a temple that Solomon builds. A temple is just like a tabernacle, but now it's stone. It's, it's the actual permanent place. Unfortunately, because of the Israelites' rebellion, disobedience, that temple is destroyed. Another one is built. You guys still with me? And then at 70 AD, that one is destroyed. Now, we know that Jesus came to fulfill everything that used to happen in that building. So we are not specifically as born-again believers hoping and waiting for this other temple, yet there are prophecies about it happening, another temple being built. So when you hear me refer to tabernacle, tent of meeting, the majority of the time I'm talking about this tent in the wilderness that was inside the Israelite camp that was the dwelling place of God. There was such a, a specific pattern that the Lord had. And I started to think back uh, this week when I was writing this message about all the way back in the garden, there was a very specific pattern that the Lord wanted this garden to be in with the certain trees in there that would develop a healthy relationship between God and man. There was a very specific way that God sent Jesus to earth, right? Of how to live and to fulfill all of the prophecies and how to die as our perfect sacrifice, how to be raised back to life. There was a pattern that happened. 
There's a pattern in how heaven is set up. There's a very specific pattern in how the new heaven and the new earth will be set up for us to live with our creator forever, with Jesus on the throne. Amen? And though none of this is really about the pattern, it's all about how God chose to dwell with man in that time. And it all points toward Jesus, who would then give us his very spirit. In Exodus 25, it says, Then have them make a sanctuary for me. I've already read this, and I will dwell among them. But he goes on to say, Make this tabernacle and all of its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. In Exodus 25, 40, talking about the lampstand, it says, see that you make them according to the pattern shown to you on the mountain. Exodus 26, 30, set up the tabernacle according to the plan. Some translations say the pattern shown to you on the mountain. There was even a certain way that the tribes were set up around the tabernacle. In Numbers 2, it says, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, the Israelites are to camp around the tent of meeting some distance from it, each of them under their standard and holding the banners of their family. So these 12 tribes of Israel actually had a certain place around the tabernacle. They had colored banners that represented different things within their tribe, meaning different things. Now, some theologians believe that it was set up in a cross form. And the more that I, I read and studied this past week, I do believe that they were probably set up more of a pattern that you see up above because they were equal distance away from the tabernacle. Regardless of the shape, this is what I want you to know, is that the people of God were all centered around the presence of God. God did not set them out looking sideways of where they were going to be headed in the future. And God didn't put their back to the tabernacle in, you know, in the direction where maybe their enemies would come. He's saying this, I want the people of God centered around the presence of God. And from that point, you will destroy every enemy. You will know when to move, what direction to move, and where to go in your life. And so many times, like, okay, I know God's with me, but... I have business decisions to make. I have financial decisions to make. There's an enemy that's talking about me. There's this challenge. And we're focused on all these other areas. And I think he's trying to remind us, go back to the tabernacle. Go back to the tabernacle where the people of God were centered around the presence of God. Everything came from the presence of God. In fact, if they were all facing this way, they wouldn't have known when the cloud or the flame actually ascended again for them to move on. For them to actually receive divine instructions, they had to be focused on what was divine. And that was the presence of God. So before we move forward, I just want to watch a quick video because for some of you, you might be hearing tabernacle and all these different pieces and so on. I don't want to cause confusion. I want us to be, again, on the same page. So we're just going to watch a quick summary of the tabernacle and we're going to talk about uh, just one portion today.
There's also a really good three-dimensional uh, tabernacle right on the hub that you can go through each of the other areas and you can click on each of the elements and it will give the scripture right from uh, where God is giving them instructions to. So I would encourage you to do that. I want to look at two, two areas, specifically one item. I want to look at the walls and the gate, what they meant to the people as they were being constructed and as they were interacting with the Lord and what they can mean to us today in our relationship with the Lord. In the Exodus chapter 38, it says, next they made the courtyards. That was the outside portion. It says, the south side was 100 cubits long and had curtains of finely twisted linen. Now, 100 cubits is about 150 feet. When you think about a cubit, because you'll see this if any of your translations still use the word cubit, think about 18 inches, or if you think about a cubit, it's from the bottom of your elbow to the tip of your finger. So anytime you hear a cubit, that's one cubit. It says, with uh, 20 posts and 20 bronze bases and with silver hooks and bands on the posts. The north side was also 100 cubits long and had 20 posts and 20 bronze bases with silver hooks and bands on the posts. Can you see if you're part of a reading plan already, you're like, that's a lot of posts, that's a lot of cubits, that's a lot of colors, I don't know what's going on. What they're actually, what God's giving instruction to is this put the walls up in a very specific way with specific colors and specific colorings and specific items over top of these wood posts. These following verses in Exodus 38 are talking about the east and the west sides and how that could be used with the same linen, the same post, and the same base. Then I want to get to verse 18 here. It says, the curtain for the entrance. So this is called the gate. This is the only way in and out of the courtyard. It says, the curtain for the entrance of the courtyard was made not just of fine white linen, but of purple, of blue, of purple, and scarlet yarn, and finely twisted linen. So now we have these colors being introduced here. It says, the work of an embroiderer. It was 20 cubits long, so just this opening itself was 30 feet. All right? It says, like the curtains of the courtyard, five cubits high, with four posts, four bronze bases. Now again, it says the hooks and the bands, those were both silver and their tops were overlaid with silver. All the tent pegs of the tabernacle and the surrounding courtyard were bronze. Now I want you to recognize when they're talking about silver and bronze and soon we'll talk about gold, all of these items, they didn't like pick up along the way at thrift stores and so on. These items by God's sovereign move, were handed to them during the Exodus. So God is blessing them. God is prospering them as they're actually exiting out of slavery where the Lord basically said to the people of Egypt, like, we want you Israelites out of here, take our stuff and get out. So now they have this immense amount of wealth and silver and gold and bronze. And they're probably thinking, why in the world are we carrying these across the desert? And God has the perfect plan. Because now they have all these things to bring to create this place where he will dwell among them. So I want you to look at these curtain walls for just a minute. The white curtain, the white finely crafted twisted linen that color white in the Bible stands for purity and righteousness. When you think about the silver, the hooks, the clasps, the bands, all of that silver represents redemption. And when you look all the way down at the base that was covered in bronze, that represents humanity and God's judgment. 
So now if you're looking through the lenses of Christ, you would know that God's plan of redemption, the silver, follow me, God's plan of redemption was upholding the righteousness that would one day pay for God's judgment against sin. And when you think about it, like the bronze, it always talks about the bronze being the base of something, touching the earth. Even the, tent, the, the pegs that would go into the earth were bronze, but yet what was on top? Silver. So the redemption of God was upholding the righteousness that Christ would one day bring to this earth to pay the full payment for the penalty of our sin, to pay the fullness of the wrath of God. This entrance curtain, we have blue, purple, and scarlet. That color blue in the Bible is a color of divinity. It's a color of heaven. That color purple is one of royalty and power. And that color scarlet obviously is a color of blood. So now when we're looking even at these three colors, this entrance way, this gate, uh, this only way in, we see these colors and we see this blue representing the Son of God who always existed with the Father in heaven. It is is representative of his divinity. And that purple, that power, and that authority is foretelling of one day that the King of kings and the Lord of lords would come from heaven to earth to reinstate the kingdom of God upon this earth. And that color red obviously represents the blood that would one day be shed for the redemptive plan of God in our lives. And when they, when they see these things, Hey, it could have meant a lot of different things to them in that day. We get the chance to see from a place of victory what these items mean. Now think about as they're walking even around this outer courtyard on the outside. I mean, there's a clear separation between being outside this thing and being inside of it. I picture like that, that white linen just with the stark contrast against the dust of the earth. And it obviously is a separation between average man and the presence of God. And there's a separation because of our sin that keeps us from the presence of God before we know Jesus as personal Lord and Savior. And yet there was one way in. There was one entrance. They couldn't sneak under the, the, the white wall anywhere else. There was one place in, and it was through that gate. It was through that entrance way that had this purple, this blue, and this scarlet. So what does the gate represent? What does the gate represent? Every time that we see and you, you read about the tabernacle and you read about this portion of scripture forever, for the rest of your life, and you hear something about the gate or the entrance, I want you to think about Jesus. Jesus is the gate. Remember, we have the full book that they didn't have back then. So in John chapter 10, verse 7, it says, Therefore Jesus said again, Very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Worship team, you can start making your way up here. I want you to see a lot of times we'll quote just John 10, 10 and just that scripture, but in context now it's talking about this. When you come through the gate of Jesus, this is where the abundant life is. 
It's not doing life in your own way. It's not doing your own things and your own plans. It's recognizing that we are his sheep, that he is the great shepherd, and that we have the ability to go through that one gate to come into relationship with God and to have eternal life. And that's what this gate represents. This entrance represents in the tabernacle. There is one way into this outer court. And there's only that one way that goes into the inner court that then goes into the most holy place. So to get into the presence of God, that he would dwell among us forevermore, it starts at the gate. And it starts with Jesus. In John 14, 6, there's questioning going on and Jesus answers them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. What does he say? No one comes to the Father except through me. He doesn't say under me, over me, or around me. He says, if you want to get to the Father, now if you picture uh, in, that, in that larger tabernacle picture where that smoke is coming up, where the glory cloud is resting, and you, if you p- would put Jesus on that stage of the tabernacle, and he would say, if you want that, if you want to be right with the Father and be at peace with the Father, you come through me because I am the gate, and I am the great shepherd, and I am the one to give you abundant life. In Matthew chapter 7, he says, enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. I don't think Jesus is saying here that it's hard to find. I just think that once we find it, it's hard to die to ourselves to count the cost of saying, okay, I see what can happen. I can tell, I can begin to discern what being forgiven of all my sins uh, would be like. I can start to consider what life in heaven or on the new earth, the new Jerusalem would be like. But am I gonna choose to die to myself? Am I gonna choose that one narrow gate? I can't imagine what it would have been like once this tabernacle was set up for people as they began to carry their offerings and the the animals that will be sacrificed, they start to come in through that gate. Coming in through that gate is an exiting of everything else that's around. There's a reason why those walls were high enough, not just for people not to climb over it, but so you could not see anything else that was going on. It was all about you bringing an offering and a sacrifice to the Lord at that time. It was all about each of these elements and how to worship him in a deeper way. And though the average Israelite was only allowed in that outer court, they knew what was going on in the holy place and the most holy place. They knew how it was representative of what was something yet to come, someone yet to come. So I could just picture with all all the noise and all the surrounding chaos of a few million people on the outside, you just walk through that gate and it's all about you giving an offering to the Lord, focused on the Lord, centered on the Lord. I can imagine now what the priests would go through when we get into the place called the holy place and the most holy place knowing we've said it time and time again and Sharice mentioned it just two weeks ago we are the royal priesthood now we are the ones that get to minister in the presence of the Lord directly to him not waiting for man to do something for us not waiting for a curtain to be torn 
we get to come right into the presence. This term gate or entranceway into the tabernacle is our faith in Jesus. It's the only way that you're getting in through this gate. When you walk through, you're saying, I am trusting Jesus to be my Lord and my Savior. I believe that he is the Messiah. He's the anointed one. He's the one that was sent by God for the redemption of my life, for the forgiveness of my sins, for freedom from the enemy. That's what happens when we're walking through this gate. We're saying, my faith is in the one. My faith is no longer in an animal sacrifice. My faith is no longer in a proper way of washing hands. My faith is in the one named Jesus. We're going to end with a song today, but I just want you to bow your heads. And if you're at home, just kind of close yourself off, even before we move on. I just want you to ask yourself if you know without a shadow of a doubt that you've walked through that gate called Jesus. And if you are not sure that you've ever walked through that gate, name Jesus by putting your faith in him to become the Lord and Savior of your life. And you want to do that today. I want you to raise your hand. I want you to look up at me. And I want to personally pray with you after this service. So anyone in this room that is just not sure you've done that, but you want to make that commitment, you want to say, I want to take that step through the outside to the inside today, through the gate of Jesus Christ. Anyone at all in this room? If you're online right now and you want to make that decision or you're just even unclear what it means on the hub, there's a link that says, I'm interested in following Jesus. You can click on that and send us a message and we will contact you tomorrow. Why don't you go ahead and look up here? This is the awesome thing about this is that if you did not raise your hand, you're in one or two places right now. Either you are very confident you've walked through that and now you know that the presence of God dwells in you, that you have salvation, that you've been brought from darkness to light. You've transitioned from sinner to saint. What, right? One that was bound and enslaved by the enemy to complete freedom. That should cause for joy, right? If you're not sure if you've ever walked through that gate and you didn't raise your hand, then at least you might be at a place of curiosity. And there are leaders and pastors and our spouses here that want to help you understand what Jesus did for you. So I would still encourage you to engage with us. Ask us a question and let us help you on your journey. Now there's a posture of our heart that I believe is in scripture that when people walked through that entrance way, like follow me here, they could have been a good distance away carrying this animal. I mean, there's a couple million people, so they're not all like a three minute walk from the, the entrance gate. So when they're walking with their animal to bring it to the Lord as a sacrifice, and when they're hearing about this day of atonement that we'll talk about, where their sins would be forgiven in a temporary basis. Think about the joy that they would have knowing I'm walking through this entranceway to offer something to the Lord. And though there's a holy fear, right? There's an awe and a fear when the presence of God comes at times. There should also be a joy. There should also be a shouting. There should also be rejoicing, knowing that we have walked through the gate. We live with the gate and his name is Jesus, amen? 
So when I see of Psalm 100 verse 1 that says, Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before Him with joyful songs. Again, it doesn't matter if you sound good or not. If you realize and you truly believe that you will have none of your sins accounted for on the final day of judgment, something should be stirring up in you. Right? You realize the Spirit of God lives in you, that He loves you enough to dwell with you. There should be gladness, there should be joy, and there should be shouting. Verse 3 says, Know that the Lord is God. It is He who made us, and we are His. We are His people, the sheep of His pasture. Now follow this. This is Old Testament Psalms, the sheep of His pasture. What does Jesus say? He's the gate. He's the shepherd. We are His sheep. Now I love this in verse 4. This is now talking specifically about entering into what? The tabernacle. Put this back in the day. Enter his gates. What are they talking about? The gate of the tabernacle. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise because they knew something significant was about to happen in their own spiritual life. Give thanks to him and praise his name for the Lord is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. Little did the author of this Psalm, who they think is Moses, know that generation after generation, once Jesus came, that we'd be able to celebrate his goodness and his love. So if I see in Scripture, we're going to obey Scripture. There's shouting for joy. There's worshiping with gladness. There's singing joyful songs. There's entering with thanksgiving. There's praise. There's giving thanks. And there's praising his holy name. Something has to connect with us, folks. This isn't like a little Bible story. This is the reality of what Jesus did for you. So we're gonna close today just by singing a good song. Just imagine yourself, imagine yourself walking toward the gates of the tabernacle, walking around the white linen wall, coming into that entrance gate as you sing this song together.
Jesus, Lord, you're worthy of all of the glory and all of the honor and all of the praise. When I think about the Lord, how he saved me, how he raised me, how he filled me with the Holy Ghost, how he healed me. creator, the lover of our being. God, we thank you that we are your beloved. We thank you for the presence of your Holy Spirit. We thank you that your scripture has made it clear of who Jesus is as the gate, the entranceway into a beautiful and eternal kingdom called the family of God. Father, we thank you. We count it an, an uncomparable privilege to be able to be in your presence, no longer separated, no longer separated by our sin or by a veil, by a cloth, by a wall. God, that we are one. We can come into your presence at any moment knowing that we are one with Christ. We thank you for that. We honor you for that. God, even as we see this week, as we see gates, as we see doorways, as we see entrances into places, remind us of what Jesus did for us. Remind us that he is divine, that he is the king of kings, and that he did shed his blood on that cross 
for the forgiveness of our sins, God. Connect it to our everyday life as we see these gates, as we see these doorways and entrances, that we can be thankful that we know Jesus as our Lord and our Savior. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Listen, before you leave today, I really felt like whenever I was writing this uh, message to that the Lord has several of you. You might be online and you can comment. Maybe Dana, you can stay on for a few more moments. I feel like the Lord has some of you at a gateway in your life. That could be spiritually, where you feel like you've come into something new spiritually, but it could be in your family or in your career. So if you would feel, if you feel like you are at the precipice of something uh, that you're going to enter into a new season, like you're at a gateway. I really want the opportunity to pray with you. So we'll have some of our pastors, elders, and spouses down here. I don't want you to leave today. If you feel like you're at the gate of something new in your life, I want you to come forward. We want to pray with you guys. God bless you. Have a great day. So what I want you to do, uh, if you're online, you can raise your hand in the comment section. But if you're in the house today, I want you to raise your hand if you've ever been camping before in a tent. Not like in a cabin, not whether it's TV or heating or air conditioning. All right, that's good. Thank you. There's a lot of you. That's good. I've only been uh, camping in a tent just a few <clears throat> a few times, but every single one of those times has been meaningful. Uh, it's been uh, uh, what you could say, you know, a relationship building experience. There's Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe and go visit centralconnect.org for more information and media.